morning, everyone. I hope everyone is doing well. My name is Liz DeMontron. I'm a financial advisor on the Young Lockwood Sour team at UBS here in Houston. Thank you, everyone, for, for joining, for listening in today. And this is the inaugural podcast for our team's new podcast series titled Deep Roots, Forward Thinking. UBS as a firm has given us great resources that we would like to leverage to embark on our own podcast series. So thrilled to be able to provide this to our clients and to our listeners. And basically the format is going to be an interview format. So each week I am your host, Liz, will be interviewing a center of influence from either inside or outside of the firm who will be providing conversations and um, just great pieces of thought leadership for us to be thinking about. So this is our special first podcast. So we have accordingly a very special first guest. So around 18 months ago, March 2020, we obviously had a lot of questions. It was the beginning of a global pandemic. Schools and offices were shutting down. There were nationwide lockdowns going on around the world. Trillions of dollars were being printed and thrown into these economies by the weeks. And there was a lot of uncertainty. Fast forward 18 months later, it's September 2021. And even though we've seen this great recovery, there's still a good amount, if not more, uncertainty. We have an equity market hitting all-time highs despite some slowing growth. We have some fears coming out of China that we saw earlier this week. We're emerging from the pandemic, but there is some of these variants going on. So anyways, to help clarify some of this uncertainty and to help us answer these questions, um, I'm delighted to introduce our guest, the chief economist of UBS Global Wealth Management, Paul Donovan, who is joining us over from London. He's been with the firm for 30 years. And like I said, he'll be answering our questions with his usual brilliance, flair, and panache. So Paul, I know that's a lot of pressure, but after listening to your podcast for the past few years, I know that you can handle it. Welcome. Thank you very much, Liz. Very happy to be here. Okay, super. Well, I guess just getting started, I'll keep it pretty high level. You know, how would you describe your role at a global bank in this day and age? Well, I always think um, everyone should be able to understand economics. Everyone makes economic decisions all of the time. But uh, the problem is the economic profession over the years has sort of wrapped um, the language of economics up in this complicated jargon and we throw unnecessary equations at everything. And so I think a lot of my role is helping colleagues and helping clients understand what they already know about the economy and pointing out to them things that they actually already have a very good handle on. They already actually understand a lot of what's going on. But sometimes just need to strip away some of the complexity and, and just look at things simply, use simple language to you know, explain what's going on. And so my role, frankly, is to be talking with clients, talking with colleagues about where the world economy is heading, where the main risks are heading, and trying to get uh, the broad message across. Uh, I also, of course, sit as part of our Global Investment Committee, so I make sure that the investment decisions that UBS Wealth Management is taking on behalf of its clients are consistent with the economic outlook and the economic risks as we see them. And I have a number of functions elsewhere in the bank, uh, on, on the bank's risk committee and so on, where I'm doing pretty much the same sort of thing. Great. 
No, you're right. Being able to distill lots of information into layman's terms for us, for our clients is incredibly invaluable. Part of that distillation is looking over and sifting through large amounts of data all around the world. How do you think about that in this day and age where the average Joe is pummeled with lots of information and also a day and age where some of that data, some of the accuracy can be questioned? For example, we get monthly payroll numbers, but there's the whisper payroll numbers and a shadow kind of labor market. What are your thoughts on data and the accuracy of the data that you're looking at? I think we've got to recognize that data is not accurate. I mean, something as large and as complex as an economy, data is never going to be that precise. It's an approximation. We have to recognize that. Uh, I often say, you know, economists include a decimal point in their forecasts to prove they have a sense of humor. Um, you know, ignore everything after the decimal point. I mean, it's just meaningless uh, when you're, you're talking about this thing. We, we should really be focused on the broad trends. But there is actually, I think, uh, a couple of aspects now which mean that data is actually becoming a little bit more problematic even than it has been in the past. So the first of these is that still an enormous amount of data today is measured by surveys. So GDP is a survey, consumer price inflation is a survey. And then of course we have the actual survey, things like the ISM or consumer confidence data. And in the modern age, where you know, you're bombarded with emails all the time and you know, we're, we're always hyper-connected, people stopped filling in surveys a long time ago. So the response rate for these surveys has gone down and that has reduced the accuracy. And where it's an absolute survey, like a consumer sentiment survey, it tends to be very, very weak uh, quality data indeed. And then the second thing that's happening is that we are embarking on a period of really dramatic structural change in the global economy. What economists call the fourth industrial revolution, which in many ways I think is the most dramatic period of change that the world economy has had in 250 years. Now, the problem with this is the world is tending to move faster than statisticians can cope with. So what we're seeing here is very rapid sets of changes uh, coming through, which um, the statisticians can't necessarily keep up with. One example, uh, for instance, is that since the pandemic, we have seen this explosion of small business startups, huge increase in the number of small business startups, the UK, the US, Germany, France, Singapore, etc. And the economic data doesn't really have a clue what these startups are doing. Uh, what their business models are, what sectors of the economy they're in. You know, we've got, we know that there's a large number of business startups, and that's about all we know. And yet, this has got huge implications for uh, household income, for savings, for economic activity, for employment. Um, and it's just this black hole as far as statistics are concerned. So, with all of these structural changes and lots and lots of new things happening in the economy, we're bound to miss out on things uh, with the data. So what that leaves me with is the idea that we should focus on trends and we should try and use as broad a range of economic indicators as we can to try and discern what is going on. But 
Don't worry about what happens after the decimal point. Don't get worked up about the detail. It's the broad trend that is going to matter most of the time, but looking at as much data as you can possibly manage to get a real understanding of how the economy and how investment likely to perform. Excellent. Thank you. Well, dovetailing on the topic of small businesses and small business owners, you know, many of our clients, our firm's clients, are business owners, especially private business owners, and they've been at the center of some of these supply chain issues that we've seen globally, where their input costs are going up and therefore they're having to raise their cost to the end users. Globally, when do you see some of these supply chain issues resolving, i.e., when is the couch that I ordered in January going to be delivered? It's a very good question. And actually, it's very telling that what we've seen is not actually major supply chain disruption. There are one or two specific products where there's supply chain disruption. If I look globally, the world economy today is making more goods than it has ever made in its history. Global manufacturing is at a record high. Global trade has been above 2019 levels nearly all year. So we're producing and supplying huge amounts of goods. But what has happened is that over the course of this year, we have seen a remarkable surge in demand. Because in developed economies, not in emerging markets, but in developed economies, consumers saved a lot of money last year. And as they emerged from lockdown and emerged from the pandemic, they started to spend that money. But there was also a a very peculiar shift in spending patterns. But because you still have quite a lot of restrictions in place on socializing and going out and traveling, people spent disproportionately on goods rather than on services. So when I look at US durable consumer goods, uh, excluding autos, so this is, this is your couch, this is the, the washing machine or the flat screen TV or whatever, their demand is running at about 25% above trend. So what has happened is the level of demand from, from the final consumer is overwhelming supply because of course no sensible business owner keeps 25% spare capacity on the off chance that you're going to get an unprecedented spike in demand. That's no way to run a business. And so what has happened is that we've seen the demand overwhelm the supply. So the problem is not that you ordered a couch back in January and there's a problem with the supply chain. The problem is you're ordering a couch and your neighbor was ordering a couch and somebody over in the next town was ordering a couch all at the same time. And that's overwhelmed the production process. And what we've tended to see are two distinct responses coming through on the part of businesses, depending on what you're selling. So businesses where the brand value is very important or where customer loyalty is very important, where you expect to get customers coming back to you time and time again, those businesses uh, are tending to not raise prices, to say to their customers, no, you've got to wait. Can't do anything about it, huge amount of demand, you're going to have to wait another month before we can deliver. Uh, But we won't raise the price. However, businesses where it's a one-time transaction, where you don't need to keep customer loyalty, where you don't need to protect the value of your brand particularly, there you try and get as much money out of the customer as you can. 
And used cars is a, is a classic example. You know, if I was selling you a 2001 Honda Civic, I hope never to see you again. I want to get as much money out of you, push the car off you, and then I don't want to see you, see you again. That's it, we're done. And so, of course, there you will see the price increases because there's, there's no risk. I don't want you coming back to, to try and buy another car off me. Once I've sold it, I've sold it. So that's the sort of split that we're seeing. And this is why, for, for actually quite large parts of the economy, pricing is, is relatively moderate. We're not seeing big price increases. But then in small areas of the economy, we're getting these really exceptional price increases coming through. Wow. Thank you. So with this huge ramp up in the production of goods, as the economy, especially in the U.S., has recovered, we've also seen a resumption of the services part of the economy. One thing you talk about is the Instagram effect. What does my Instagram have to do with the economy, with inflation? This is something about the patent demand. As I just said, in the early stages of coming out of the pandemic, demand was really peculiar in that it was very strongly skewed towards spending on goods. And you know, it's sort of understandable. You've been sitting at home, you've been you know, looking at your old-fashioned couch for a year, uh, you've had nothing else to do except watch home makeover programs on Netflix. You know, as your first opportunity, of course, you're gonna go out and spend on goods, you're gonna you replace the couch. But as time goes on, and as fear of the virus has come down, and as people have started to have restrictions eased, people want to have fun. And that changes the pattern of spending. And what we're seeing with this changed pattern of spending is the Instagram test. So people are spending money on things they can post pictures about on Instagram. So that's going out for meals with friends, going out for drinks, holidays and travel, and new clothes. So the one goods component is new clothes. So you start to see that shift in spending. And in the United States, because the United States opened up relatively early on in the process this year, uh, the United States, we are now seeing that shift where the demand for durable goods is clearly peaking out. at this exceptionally high level, but it's peaking out. Whereas we're starting to see a larger share of the money that's been saved being taken out and spent on having fun passing the Instagram test, which is a mainly service sector thing. And so as we rebalance the demand between goods and services uh, and get back to a more normal balance between the two, that means that the exceptional demand, which has for some sectors pushed inflation up, is reversing quite quickly. And again, used cars, very good example of this. We started to see used car prices coming down and the rate of inflation is coming down and eventually we're actually gonna get negative inflation, I think, for used car prices, because you know, we, we had that surge in demand, but now people are saying, actually, you know what, I don't want another car, I want to go out and, and have a holiday, I want to go out and enjoy myself with my friends, and so you see that shift in spending. So this normalization of spending will contribute to a normalization of inflation rates, not immediately, but, but over the course of the next six to nine months, I would say. 
Great. Thank you. Well, you know, inflation um, has been top of mind, I think, for, for lots of folks this year, and it's especially top of mind today, which ends the two-day meeting of the Federal Reserve. So we know that those members are um, discussing and will be announcing pretty soon their path forward. What, in your mind, are the implications for the Federal Reserve tapering, so pairing back their monthly bond purchases? What are the implications for the U.S. economy, for the U.S. consumer, and then also more broadly emerging economies? This is a quite complicated area. To be a little bit simplistic, the quantitative policy, uh, bond buying, money printing, call it what you will, that is mainly about economic growth. Whereas the Fed funds rate, interest rates, or monetary policy is mainly about inflation. That's a slight oversimplification, but it's a, it's a reasonable way of thinking about this. So, what happened last year was that we had this big increase in savings that we've been talking about. But when people save money, they tend to save it as cash. In many cases, as physical cash, tucked under the mattress, or what we call quasi cash, which is in deposits you've got instant access to in the banking system. So what we saw last year was a very big increase in demand for cash. Now, in the United States, there was only one legal supplier of cash, and that's the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve had to match that increase in demand for cash with an increase in supply if it wanted to prevent a crisis in the financial sector. And so that's exactly what they did, and they did that through bond buying. Because what you're doing is you're handing out cash in exchange for, for bonds, which obviously aren't cash. They're a form of relatively illiquid. So what you end up with then is this policy of, as people are saving money, the Federal Reserve needs to put cash into the system. What is happening this year is those savings are not being held as cash anymore. They're being put to work in the economy, as we've been discussing. And so the demand for cash has been slowing down. And that means that the Federal Reserve has less need to supply cash into the system. If there's less demand, you don't need to supply as much. And so that's why we're moving towards a tapering. Now, what that means from an economic perspective is the Fed is simply trying to maintain a balance between liquidity supply and liquidity demand, or cash supply and cash demand, they've got to put it another way. And so what they're trying to do is actually just to maintain the status quo and say, well, okay, demand's gone down, so supply goes down. Demand goes up, supply goes up, demand goes down, supply goes down. So that doesn't necessarily have a huge economic impact. It's more about maintaining stability with the quantitative policy. Now, they may not get it perfectly right, so there might be a little bit of noise in the economy, but that's what's going on. However, for the financial markets, things are a bit different. Because in the financial markets, of course, the Fed's action of providing liquidity means that they buy bonds, which means that bonds are driven up in price, down in yield, so you get distorted yields in the bond market. Uh, and yields have been kept very low by the Federal Reserve's actions. That then has implications for uh, equity markets, because if you're in a low yield environment, uh, investors find government bonds unattractive and they move into equities, they move out the risk curve, as we would say. And for emerging markets as well, if the 10-year U.S. Treasury is a very low yield, investors might find an emerging market government bond more attractive and move into that. So as the Federal Reserve scales back its bond purchases, we would expect Treasury yields to rise somewhat, 
And with that rise, you are then changing the fundamentals for at least for part of the equity market and part of the uh, emerging market bonds as well. Now, I think we need a sense of perspective here. The Fed's not going to have a collapse in the bond market. This isn't going to be 1994 when you know, we've got a huge rise in bond yields. This is going to be a fairly moderate process, I think. The Fed, I think, is going to keep a commitment to an, a relatively supportive monetary policy regime. The Fed isn't going to be selling bonds. It's just going to be buying fewer bonds uh, as time goes on. So you know, we, we need a sense of perspective. I'm not talking about you know, yields of four, five, six percent, so nothing like that. What we're talking about here is a relatively moderate rise in yields, maybe to a little bit below two percent by the end of this year for the 10-year US Treasury, something like that, which I think is manageable, but there will be some repercussions for other asset classes as you see your yields rising a little bit. But we have been there before this year. We've seen yields at this sort of level earlier on this year. So it's, it's hardly an unprecedented situation uh, if we get that sort of rise on a Fed tapering announcement. Should we be thinking about upcoming potential tax hikes as additional tightening, kind of in conjunction with what the Federal Reserve is moving towards. You know, to your point, they're not raising rates tomorrow. But, you know, how do you view this kind of fiscal and monetary policy actions in tandem? So we shouldn't be thinking about tax hikes as a tightening because we shouldn't think about tax hikes in isolation. So the Biden administration, the U.S. Congress is, is obviously debating fiscal policy, but what they're doing is, of course, a spending and tax plan. So this is not, we're going to raise taxes because we want to reduce the deficit. This is, we want to spend more money and we're going to raise taxes in order to finance that spending. In that sense, what we have is more redistributive rather than an, an over-tightening. Now, of course, if you're somebody that is paying higher taxes and not receiving uh, any of the government spending, then for you, fiscal policy has got tighter. But your next door neighbor may be getting all of the spending and not paying any higher taxes, so for them it's all stimulus. So the two things broadly cancel each other out. In fact, most of the proposals that are coming out of Washington at the moment would be considered a very mild stimulus as such, because you are seeing uh, the proposed tax revenues uh, not quite match the proposed spending. It's not a huge stimulus, it's spread out over a long period of time, you know, 10 years or more, but it's very moderately a stimulus overall. But primarily this is about redistribution rather than you know, trying to boost the level of GDP growth. Great, thank you. So, you know, last year in 2020, we saw a recession, you know, around the world. It was my first time to be in this business with a bear market with the recession. This recession was caused by this pandemic, which can be defined as an exogenous shock. You know, how do you think about the recession and is it a typical tried and true similar to 2008 recession or do you think about it differently? So I don't think it was a recession at all, uh, I'm afraid. So the way economists think about a recession, there isn't actually a formal definition of the term in economics. The word recession is actually a, a made-up media term rather than an economic term. But a recession is, it's not just about a drop in GDP. It's about an unbalanced economy where the imbalances cause the economy to contract and where policymakers then need to come in and tackle the imbalances 
bring stability back to the economy, and then you get a gradual recovery of confidence and a gradual recovery of economic activity. And it follows a certain pattern, and, and you know, whilst the, the causes of the imbalance will differ from time to time, and the, the duration of the economic weakness will differ, there is a certain pattern that one gets in a conventional recession. Now, this doesn't begin to describe what we had last year, and I think that the best analogy is actually to the French concept of Grand Vacances, uh, the, the great holidays. Because what the French do every April, uh, I think about every August, is they stop work. The month of August, the, the country shuts down, basically. Everyone goes on holiday. And if you look at non-seasonally adjusted data for France and look at what happens in August, you get this astonishingly abrupt drop in GDP, drop in economic activity. And that's because everyone's gone on holiday all at the same time. But then in September, they all go back to work again. And so you get this sudden surge in economic activity in September. And it's, it's not this sort of gradual, unbalanced economy moving into a downturn and then gradually sorting itself out and gradually pulling yourself out of it. It's far more binary than that. It's like turning a light switch off and on again. And I think that that's really the better way to think about what happened last year. It's not a conventional recession recovery pattern. This is far more like Grand Vacances. And in actual fact, right at the start of the pandemic in March, when we were seeing some really wild estimates of the economic damage that was going to be done by these lockdowns and so on, and people just coming up with absurd numbers, what we did was sit down and we looked at countries like France or the Nordic countries, which also have a, an equivalent of Grand Vacances, and said, okay, well, for every month that they're shut down, this is what they lose in GDP in August. So we would assume that we're going to see something like that with the, with the lockdowns and the shutdowns. And it gave us a far more realistic sense of what's, what's been going on. Now, the reason that this, this approach, this mentality is important is because what we've seen over the last 12 months is that economies, as restrictions have been lifted, have tended to recover a lot faster and a lot earlier with stronger labor markets than the, mar the financial markets have been expecting. So investors have, have tended to continually be positively surprised over the course of the last year. And the reason for that is I think too many investors have been trying to squeeze the story of 2020 and 2021 into this classic recession recovery narrative, and it just doesn't fit. Whereas if you try and put it into a, a Grand Vacances narrative, you actually end up with a far faster and far stronger bounce back, which is exactly what we see. So this is why the markets have been surprised so much and why the economic data has kept coming in stronger than expected, and at least until very recently, because markets are now starting to get the message. But you know, for most of the last 12 months, we've had continual positive surprises. Earnings growth has been stronger than expected, and it's because it's not a recession in a classic sense uh, it's this Grand Vacances model that we're following. Wow. Well, I always thought I wanted to move to France. <laughs> and I think that's further validation. Very, very helpful. Well, you know, speaking more globally, earlier this week, there were concerns from investors and from the market about China and potential slowdowns in the real estate and the property industry over there. How should we be thinking about potential slowdown in this industry in China, potential slowdown of GDP in China, and what the implications are for the rest of the world? 
the issues in the property market in China are something of a concern, but it's not a huge concern. This isn't sort of a Lehman Brothers moment for China, in our view. The Evergrande uh, property company, which is the, the company at the center of the storm, is big, but it's not disruptive enough to, I think, bring down the financial system or anything like that. The Chinese government is going to take remedial measures. Property is very important to the middle class in China, which makes it politically significant. So nobody's going to want a, a complete property collapse or anything like that. So there will be every effort made to stabilize the system. And it may mean a loss of some GDP growth, absolutely, but there will be an attempt to stabilize the system, I think. What does that mean globally? Actually, remarkably little. So what we need to remember about China is that China is really two separate economies in the same geographical space. You have the global aspect of the economy, the world's largest manufacturer, you know, a key link in current long and complicated global supply chains. And then you have the domestic Chinese economy. And the domestic Chinese economy, most of it is you know, a relatively low income. You know, a quarter of, of households in China less than five dollars fifty a, a day. I mean, this is you know, this is a very low income area, and it's not particularly tied in to the global economy. You know, the a lot of the domestic economy is Chinese made product being sold to Chinese consumers. So it really depends on on you know, what sort of policy responses we're getting and some of the detail. But we wouldn't expect a lot of contagion from slowdown of, of let's say one percent of GDP in China to the rest of the world because the manufacturing sector that imports components packages them together and exports them again that's still going to carry on because that part of the economy doesn't depend on domestic Chinese demand it depends on global demand and it's sort of a, a separate concept for the domestic economy the domestic economy doesn't have sort of the global impact that just looking at the headline numbers of the size of the Chinese economy might lead you to suppose. Obviously, there are some impacts. Um, so one can imagine that certain commodity producers who are selling iron ore, for example, or coal or the construction materials into China, um, you, they will be affected. But this is you know, a relatively relative niche area uh, of the global economy. We're not talking about the major sway of the global economy. Um, you know, as an economist, I am far more concerned about what the US consumer is doing than what the Chinese economy is doing. Because the US consumer, if the US consumers start slowing their spending, that impacts everybody around the world. If the Chinese economy domestically slows, there is an impact on the rest of the world, but it's relatively slight. Great. That perspective is very, very helpful. Well, we are nearing the end of our time together, so it looks like I have one last question. Um, another topic that I think has garnered a lot of interest globally over the past year and a half is cryptocurrency. So wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, A, what is crypto? And B, should we be thinking about it like a currency? Well, to answer the second one first, you absolutely should not think about it like a currency. It is not and never will be a currency. And I think that is becoming abundantly clear. Currencies have to have certain characteristics. So they need to be a stable store of value. In other words, you know, if you can buy a Big Mac meal with you know, your, your dollars today, 
you have to have a reasonable expectation that you can buy the same Big Mac meal with the same number of dollars tomorrow. And of course, you can't do that with crypto. If you look at a crypto like Bitcoin, for example, I forget how many hyperinflation episodes there have been, but we've had at least two this year, where the value has fallen more than, more than 25% in the space of a month. I mean, this is, you know, if you wake up one morning and suddenly find that you can buy 25% fewer goods and services with the same amount of currency that you're holding, that's not a currency, that's, uh, that's a speculative uh, investment. The other thing is that there is no natural demand for crypto, which is actually a, a, a critical issue. So despite claims that you can pay your taxes in crypto, you actually can't pay taxes in crypto anywhere in the world. So even in somewhere like El Salvador, which in theory has crypto as a legal tender, your tax liability is in dollars. And so if Bitcoin halves in value against the dollar, which of course is perfectly possible, you will have to find twice as many Bitcoin to meet your tax liability. Now, the reason this is important is that this obviously means anybody sensible is going to hold dollars that they owe taxes in El Salvador. Because you don't want to you know, suddenly find out that you, you've got to scramble around and find twice as much money to meet your tax liabilities at zero notice. Um, the issue here is that the single most important source of demand for currency in the world is to pay taxes. It's the largest uh, economic transaction in the global economy. And it is that natural demand. If you pay taxes in the United States, the first thing you've got to do is get your hands on dollars to meet your tax liability. And so that gives the dollar a natural level of demand, which gives it stability as far as its value is concerned. So we would regard crypto as being entirely speculative. I would suggest, you know, if you want to gamble, Las Vegas is probably more fun, but you can on crypto if you want to. But that's the way to think about it. Now, that doesn't mean that we, we dismiss the technology. You know, there are aspects of blockchain technology, there are aspects of digitization, which are extremely valuable and which will have a role. But you don't play that through crypto. You play that through looking at the technology, at the underlying tech providers, or at sectors of the economy where there could be significant efficiency gains from a process of, of applying blockchain or digitization to transactions. So you know, for us, crypto is just a gamble as such, but the technology behind it and the application of that technology, which is the important thing, can be a staid old-fashioned business, but if it can use some of this technology to increase efficiency, that's where things become a bit more exciting. Absolutely. I have a feeling something to look forward to as we continue to move towards this fourth industrial revolution and everything else. So, Paul, thank you so much for your time today. It was so incredibly helpful to hear your perspective, to get our questions answered. And um, I certainly feel better uh, moving forward, but um, I think still lots to discuss. Absolutely. That is the, the great advantage of economics. We can always find something to talk about. <laughs> No two days are the same. Dynamic. Well, thank you so much again for your time today, Paul. And thank you, everyone, for joining. Again, this has been our first episode of Deep Roots Forward Thinking by the Young Lockwood Sour team at UBS in Houston. I'm your host, Liz DeMontron, signing off. Thanks again. Thanks again.